um, I invite participants before we actually go through the human journey to prepare by choosing two objects in their home. And one object represents something that they have loved about their past, something that brings up feelings of gratitude and um, feelings of, of a loving memory. Not, I mean, not everyone had a very positive childhood, but there may be something that reminds them of something that gave them joy or a sense of beauty from their past and for them to select that. And then for the second object, I recommend that people select an object that represents the person they feel they are becoming. That maybe they're not there yet, but the person, it represents uh, the soul that they are uh, about to live into. And to possibly share those objects with your family members could be very powerful for them and to articulate the, um, the connection between the person that was formed and the person that is in the state of becoming. This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psycho-spiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe and Saul. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Short. Our guest today is Sarah Schneider. Uh, she's the founder of the Human Journey Game, but she's also the CEO of the company with the same name, the Human Journey. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be with you, Saul and Joe. Yeah. Could you give us um, a little background of your childhood? Where did you grow up? So I, I was born in Boston, but we quickly moved to Southern California, um, to La Jolla, when my dad got the opportunity to teach um, at UCSD, part of the University of California system. And uh, shortly after that, my mother started designing courses in biological and social sciences for the university extension. So these were courses for the public. And between the two of them, um, I ended up getting the chance to meet a lot of the prominent um, psychologists and social scientists of the era, uh, including Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, um, which, who had a really big impact on me as a kid. Um, and so I, I grew up um, very interested in the arts. I was dancing, uh, later doing classical singing, and ended up going to the East Coast to, um, to college, and then later did a master's and doctorate at NYU in a field called performance studies, Hmm. which blends the social sciences with arts disciplines. Um, And uh, and in those days, I started a small experimental theater company uh, in New York. It was based in a corner of my living room. (laughs) And and we would rent theater space when we could, uh, when we had the production ready and had the funding. And um, my first production there was actually using Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages, what were then considered to be five linear stages, they're not anymore, Mm. um, of grief. And and I used those as five acts of the theater piece. They were actually a structuring Mm. mechanism. Um, So I worked in theater for a long time. I was a a, uh, drama professor at various universities and, um, and then later moved to Chicago to do some consulting work, organizational learning and consulting 
Um, and so I've worked in a variety of different fields from drama to organizational learning to anthropological field work uh, because performance studies is both uh, cultural anthropology on the one hand and arts disciplines on the other. Man, it looks like uh, your parents were both in academia. Where did the passion for arts, performance arts, come from? Um, I had three big brothers, uh, two of whom were very involved in the arts. I was a little kid when they were both performing. Um, and so I was constantly going to their their musicals and <laughs> you know wanting to to grow up and be like them. I think the the singing came out of wanting to, you know uh, hurry up and catch up to where my brothers were. Um, but I, I think it's it's in my blood. I'm, I'm a you know a, a maker of things. How do you? jump into something like a hospice game. Where does that come from? How does that, how, where does that get generated? Well, it, it comes, it came out of multiple sources. One source I think was that um, I began becoming very involved in, um, in yoga as a practice, as a physical practice in the early 2000s hmm. and also began reading very heavily in yoga philosophy at the time. Hmm. And it seemed very evident to me as I was reading in yoga philosophy and it started really making sense to me that um, volunteering in hospice was a logical connection to that work. Mm. And so in the early 2000s, I became a volunteer here in Chicago, first at a hospice that um, where I worked with people in their homes and then later um, in an inpatient unit. And I was, so I was able to see some of the gaps between the ideal of what hospice was designed, what I think hospice was designed to offer and what, um, what it can do right now with increasing kind of siloization. So I, I have kind of an engineering mindset, a problem solving mindset, and, I, and that kind of started cooking for me. Um, and then I'd had this longstanding interest, you know, since I was a kid in in death and dying and kind of a feeling for, for grief. Um, I think a third strand that played into it was as a theater person, I, you know, I mentioned the theater company that I had directed earlier. Um, I was doing what are called in the theater world devised pieces. So this means that there isn't a script that comes in from the beginning. Instead, the director works directly with the actors in order to, um, create from the ground up something that illustrates the behavior that needs to happen. Hmm. And it's a very organic kind of process. And I began being interested in what I was calling the design of behavior. And now the term experience design is a much more common thing. And um, game structure is in a way a kind of um, theater direction. Hmm. So the human journey is, in a way, a kind of theater piece. It, it is a four-part experience or a system for guiding families or groups of support. They may be um, families of choice, or they may be literally support groups, even grief support groups, um, through a process that in which the first phase I call the rehearsal phase, mm. and then through three acts, a three-act structure that gives them a shaped experience um, that moves them emotionally along an emotional arc that um, is designed to foster belonging and designed to increase communication skills and to build the capacity for meaning making both individually and as a family. Who wins? <laughs> Who wins? That's. <laughs> 
you were asking the key question, Joe, um, <laughs> because, um, you know, in the game world, there are competitive games, which is almost everything. Mm-hmm. And then there are these cooperative games in which there is no winner. And oh. games, I know cooperative <laughs> games are typically um, frustrating to many, many people. And so the human journey has little elements that will satisfy those who are accustomed to uh, the competitive elements. Um, You know, you get to throw dice, you get to move pieces on a board, um, you get to kind of play a little bit, you know, against each other. But for the most part, it's in the cooperative model where, in, in essence, the family is the winner. Question with that. Yeah. Uh, it seems like there's a, a, is is this, would you consider this game to be somewhat of a real intentional communication tool within the family or how do you yes. see that? Yes. And, and the communication is largely around training listening skills. Um, you know, I, I used to work with teachers in my life as a professor. I, I taught working teachers who were going on for their master's degrees and they, in, in school life, they would talk about literacies having four different parts. There would be the learning of reading, the learning of writing, the learning of speaking, and the learning of listening. And of those four, listening was always getting short shrift. Um, and mm-hmm. I found in my work with adults as well that lis- training listening is, is among the hardest things to do. Um, and yet it's the most important thing if people are going to be on the same page in uh, hearing each other's values and being able to be quieted enough in their own assertions to be able to make good decisions going forward as a, as a group. Hmm. How does the game address the situation if you have a group that, okay, make it a family, mm-hmm. uh, and you've got that one, that one family member who uh, just doesn't get it, you know, the cooperation uh-huh. And they're and they're willing to they're willing to stand their ground and they're going. I mean, because we run into this all the time when you uh-huh. start having family meetings and gatherings and you're trying to address the fact that your loved one is really dying. That's and they're right. saying there's no way. That's right. And and I've experienced that as well in my own family uh, with more than one person. <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, good. We got somebody experienced here. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, uh, yeah, the, the I think the numbers of people who understood that this was happening was actually a minority. Um, and so it, it, the human journey in, is invitational. And, and by that, I mean, it invites people into a process where whoever is ready to participate can participate. Hmm. And then it can be uh, played or engaged in again. Typically, people who were not ready to participate the first time hmm. are willing to do it as they see what people experience. And sometimes people watch from the, um, from the, line, the outside lines and then decide to join in somewhere in the middle. Or sometimes they say, this is really not for me. I'm, you know, I'm not a talker. I'm not a feelings person. I don't agree with any of this. And that's fine. It doesn't have to be anyone who doesn't want to be there. So you don't have to have the same cast. That's right. That yeah. can, you can bring in and you can add roles and take it away and all of that. Then as, as people find it, it's necessary. And, and that's right. It, it okay. can start with a new cast um, and some of the same people can play again if they'd like to. Hmm. Um, and it will be different in that second case. So Sarah, uh, there's so many card best games. Uh, what mm-hmm. makes the human journey game uh, uh, more powerful for hospice and palliative care? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there is a wide range of decks and um, ways of working with conversations about death that are card based. Mm. And it's true, the human journey works with three different decks on the board and then this particular method. So one thing that's that's a little bit different is that there is a trained facilitator who I call the conductor, um, who is holding the space and guiding the experience of uh, the participants. And they're actually holding gr- very strict ground rules for what happens uh, among the participants in the game. So again, if there's somebody who wants to be um, uh, obstreperous or, or rebellious in some way, uh, the conductor has to be able to hold the space that that, that, that really is not going to be okay. That they have to observe um, the turn-taking and the, um, the no-cross-talk kinds of rules. Um, the, the other thing that is quite different is that whereas uh, in other games or deck-based experiences, um, there's a randomness to which card you choose when. But in the human journey, you're actually working through nine carefully choreographed scenes, mm. three scenes for each of the three acts, to create a structured experience that designs the individual's um, ability to do meaning-making but also designs the kinds of interactions as they grow over the course of the emotional arc. Mm. Um, I think the third thing that I would add in about what's different here is that the human journey actually does not uh, mention death or dying or sickness. Mm. So the idea there is um, I, I wanted to build in quite a few different safety mechanisms for people so that if people were not ready to say, death or dying, if they were not ready to say those words, they would have the opportunity to go wherever they're ready to go. And the people who are ready can actually say it. So everyone is allowed to participate at their own level of death um, without there being, um, what I'm trying to do is not scare people off Mm. at any point. Typically, um, it gets brought up, but then the conductor reminds folks that they can go at the level they're ready to go. Mm. Okay, that's what I thought you were going to try and get at because it's uh, it's important with situations now. I mean, I'm talking about right now, where exactly. we have where we have families who cannot see their loved ones because of COVID nineteen. They can't travel this journey with them. Exactly. They can't even have sometimes their own family members in the, there to talk about having a game, playing exactly. a game, and. Uh, how do you see that this is going to work when we can able to do that? That's right. So with, with families who are separated, say, say we have, you know, three members in one household, two halfway across the country, six in some other location. Um, yet there's a need for them to feel together. They're missing the touch and the hugging of each other. They're Absolutely. missing the ability to um, comfort each other in traditional <laughs> ways. What the human journey does is create a ritual of belonging for them, and I think of the human journey much more of well, much of it much more as a ritual than I do as a form of therapy. Let's say um, it's in a sense a way of transforming the the identity of the family from fragmentation uh, or isolation to a sense of belonging, even if they can't be physically together. So the way the conductors work with families in this kind of case, say you have three different households that want to find a way to come together, is that we've worked through the tools so that they can be facilitated online entirely. And in a way that equalizes the playing field for households that weren't already together. 
and it allows them to participate online across household. Um, and so we now have Zoom conductors who are, who are able to do the process with families. Uh, does this game address uh, issues of diversity? It does. The, um, you know, one of the key things in, uh, in adult education is not to talk at people with what you know and they don't. In essence, it's to draw out what the adults already know. And it's the same sense as you reach diverse communities, is to work with the knowledge and the understandings and the um, behaviors and rituals that are already present. And the human journey offers many different ways for such communities to work, to, to have multiple um, ways of working. The only fixed element in the human journey is that the ground rules have to be observed. That there, that there isn't crosstalk, that um, only the conductor asks deepening questions, that there are listening tasks, <clears throat> excuse me, that happen um, in a particular way, and that each person is the guardian of, their, of the meaning that something has for them, that there isn't back and forth about the meaning that something holds. Mm. How do you deal with a family that doesn't play games? Uh, then you don't describe it as a game to them. You know, okay. many, many, many Language matters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, some people are board game people, some people are not. And yet at the same time, um, laughter is a part of the human experience in the same way that tears are. And people mm -hmm. generally experience both in the course of um, doing this. So, what, so I use terms that I think the family will respond to. Um, in some cases, I say it's a communication tool. In other times, I say it's an experience that people can um, do as much of as they, they like. It involves drawing cards and doing little uh, tasks that are on the cards. Nobody has to do anything that they don't want to do, and they choose the level they want to play at. Um, and I don't use the term game at all. Mm. How, how? I mean, what's the age range? Uh, it can be uh, an adolescent who has a good attention span. All the way up. We'll take a short break and then we'll come back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole Berman, you're listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. We are continuing with our talk uh, with Sarah. So Sarah, could you take our listeners through the process of the game? Sure, absolutely. Um, so uh, the human journey starts with two small decks. And I mentioned before that these are called the rehearsal phase decks. And there are two, um, there's one called the conditions deck and the other that's called the, the gifts deck. And when we're in person, we spread them out on a table or a surface, or we read them to, to the family. And online, we're able to, to display them and to read them, so it works uh, somewhat similarly. And in the conditions, people select several of those cards that um, describe the conditions into which they were, in essence, dropped in life. Perhaps their family thought about money a lot or worried about money a lot. That would be one thing. Um, or perhaps they were the eldest child. 
uh, could be another. So it might have to do with birth order. It might have to do with uh, who was the person who raised the child. It might have to do with uh, feeling different because of a language difference in their community. Um, so it's many different qualities, some of which one might view as positive. Others might be viewed as distinctly hard to bear. And others merely descriptive. It just depends on how people regard them at the time. And as they select three to five of those cards, they're keeping in mind in what sense were these conditions not only true, but very specific for how they formed the character that that person uh, made for him or herself in later life. Um, and so what, which of these conditions were formative? And so the conductor helps the person edit these things down. Mm. Uh, to those three to five cards. And I usually tell people, you know, it's, you could say that one of the key conditions of my life is that I had very loving parents who can, you know, hugged me a lot and said, I love you frequently. Um, and at the same time, I was the only girl in my family. I could have chosen either of those cards. But in terms of the decisions I've made in life and the kind of character that I have, um, I might make the choice that um, sociologists you know, might not make for me, but the choice I would make would be that my being the only girl was truly formative. Mm -hmm. And so people are making these choices for themselves. And once they have them, they're not showing them to anyone. These are really just the cards that they select for themselves. It's an act of self-definition mm -hmm. and of grounding in their own reality. Now, could someone uh, look at the cards, put it back and get another one? Sure. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I mean, all the cards are face up, and oh, people okay. either write down the names of them or they uh, they select cards, but they you know they're not shown as I mentioned to, to the others. They're just they're private, and they can certainly choose other cards, or they can write their own. Oh, okay. You know, once they see the basic idea, people quickly get an idea of something that feels true for them, and they write their own. Hmm. And the goal, and and that creates a lot of deep conversations about the grief or whatever the family is going through, right? Eventually, they don't discuss it at that moment. They mm -hmm. simply hold that card close to the vest in a sense. Mm -hmm. So then in the next stage, they we, we gather up those cards, and then the second small deck is put out or shown on the, on the screen, and the family members then choose the, what we call the gifts cards. And these are also things that are given early in life. Mm -hmm. um, nobody knows where they came from, if they're... Uh, a God person, they feel that they're gifts from God, or they might have another explanation for how these things um, have been uh, handed to them. But these are talents or people who have been particular blessings in their lives from their preschool years, from the very earliest years, not because they learned to work hard for these things. They didn't work hard at math and then become good at math. It was clear from an early age that they could add in their heads or uh, be swift at kicking a ball or um, good with animals, you know, talents that just appear early on that don't seem to have an evident explanation. Hmm. And this, just listening to you, that's, um, I think it's a powerful and healing game for families. It, it, it is powerful for people, even if they have to stop there, because they're, they're acknowledging the, um, their status as recipients of life, you know, their status as people who have been shaped by whatever their spiritual world, worldview is and by whatever their environment, environmental conditions have been. 
And so they, in a, in a sense, when people are in that kind of chaos that Joe was mentioning earlier, they may be striking out or they may be um, kind of moving from the center of their beings on outward. This, in a sense, causes them to go inward and to be a little bit better bounded in their own realities. Question. Mm -hmm. I don't see anything here that says anything about the patient. Does the patient, yes. does the patient play the game? Yes. If the patient is well enough and wants to play the game, um, it's wonderful to include the patient. And in fact, part of the aim of the human journey is surrounding the, um, the benefits for the patient. Um, so it can be played by, with the patient being included or in the patient's presence if they're not well enough, or it doesn't have to be played in the, with the patient there. Um, my uh, part of the design of the experience is that when the we, we haven't quite gotten there in the course of what happens in, in the game itself, but in the course of the overall design of the experience, families begin to envision their way forward even beyond um, what they might envision as, as like the the flat door that is the death of the patient where they can't, just can't see beyond that. They envision a positive future for the family. And for a patient to be able to hear that the family can talk to each other, that they can listen to each other, and they will be okay, can give the patient permission to die if that's what they feel they need to do. It's often called a good death. Yes. Because okay. that's it, what we strive to do as chaplains, is to encourage families and and. Uh, you know, patients to have a a really good death. I mean, good death. It, well, and and it's so important, even it, it, for the patient, but also for the families to know that 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 they gave that to their loved ones. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, Sarah, I just <laughs> listening to you talk about this amazing game. What was going on in your life that motivated this? Um, you know, back in twenty twelve. I had three losses that occurred in really close in a close cluster. Mm. And, and, you know, naturally I was thrown into a kind of a, a deep grief around that. Um, but because um, as, as a thinking, as well as a feeling person, I wanted to back off of that feeling. Mm. I started doing, <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I started doing some um, scribbling around that to think about how, how do stories heal, not just the person who tells them, but the community that hears them. Because I'm aware that, you know, in, in some circles, the, the view is that people who are grieving need to tell a story a certain number of times till they're done telling the story. They need to repeat, they need to repeat. And, um, and yet, at a certain point, people don't want to hear that story that people, you know, kind of shut the door to that story. So I began thinking about how do people who are grieving uh, share in ways that also are enriching for the people who hear. Um, and I began drawing back on what I know about narrative theory. Um, I, you know, I had done that doctorate in performance studies and had been doing this theater making and began playing with a framework of different kinds of narrative genres that people use to explain their experience. And I practiced telling my story to myself, I mean, just writing, 
in those different genres. How believable I thought they were as healing, as vehicles of healing. And over time, as I started playing with them, I started ranking them as to what I thought actually worked, not just for the speaker, but for the listener as well, that, that these would be stories of growth all the way around. I, I'm, in my organizational learning work, I've always been um, big on designs that were 360 degrees that allowed everybody in the room from wherever they were in the interaction to get what they needed. Mm. And so hence the, the benefit for the family, the benefit for the patient um, in the design of the human journey. So quickly what rose to the top in that narrative framework was the hero's journey, um, which is the narrative framework, the archetypal narrative framework that was made famous with the work of Joseph Campbell, but, but actually pr- very much predates him in terms of being named in the 19th century um, by other analysts. And in the hero's journey, um, people will be very familiar with it from how films are generally structured. The, um, the hero, uh, an innocent hero, receives a call to adventure, to leave the home of origin, to, to venture out into the, the world, to encounter dragons and adventures and to slay them, and then eventually to come back with um, knowledge, with wis- particularly with wisdom, and to enrich the community from which he's from, he or she is from. And so the arc of experience of the, of the human journey is two different adaptations of the hero's journey. One is a more feminist version of this, and the second is one that makes the group the hero. And so for me, actually working on this game aesthetically and as a problem to be solved uh, was a wonderful way of healing. Hmm. I wanted, for me, you know, doing something that brings benefit to others certainly is is a healing modality. That's powerful, and you are best positioned to do that. So how does someone become a conductor of the human journey? Um, they uh, can come to the website. Uh, it's thehumanjourney.com, where there are dashes between all the words. So it's the-human-journey.com. Hmm. And there, there's a link to the training dates, and the trainings are online. Um, we ship them the kits, the actual physical kits. There's a guidebook they study, and then it's essentially a mentoring process where uh, there are three sessions weekly where they do practice of the first half journey with um, a small group and come back, receive coaching on that, and then go out, do a full journey, and then come back one more time. So it's a really good educational model for them to be become practicing conductors. Uh, right now, as we're talking, um, there's a lot going on in the country in terms of the COVID-19, but also the racial pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, can this game help in, in terms of racial healing? You know, um, one of the conductors that I worked with about six months ago who had done a lot of work in restorative justice uh, said you should be using this in that setting um, to help in that, in that mode. And so I started working on an edition of the human journey that would uh, help to bring community uh, police and people in neighborhoods together. And so I'm now um, continuing work with that as I'm drafting that edition. Um, I think that, that uh, it needs a very specific uh, arc, what, I, what I've been calling the arc of experience for that purpose. And I'm very excited about developing that model. Hmm. 
I watched a movie last night called The Best of Enemies. You ever heard of it? Mm-hmm. And I, I have, yeah, but, yeah. yeah. The Best of Enemies is a situation in North Carolina where school burned down, the black school burned down, and they were talking about integration at the time. Mm-hmm. And the story goes with uh, Ann Atwater, who is the uh, the black advocate, and then you had uh, the gentleman who was the head of the Ku Klux Klan there. And you got to watch, and of course this is based on a very true story of what took place and how they became the best of friends. Mm-hmm. And it just reminds me of what you're talking about here, about opening up doors to uh, situations so that you, you know, you do something like this and you can open the doors to many conversations of which could lead to a change that hopefully would make something as meaningful as that. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a, an extremely relevant application for this kind of work. Um, and those kinds of stories of people having the patience and the belief and the faith that a reconciliation and a, a positive change is possible are extremely moving to me. I I found that movie so appropriate these day and age. It's it's uh... absolutely, absolutely. You know, may there be more like that. I've been in conversation with um, some of the police in Canada who have a much more, it's, it seems a much more advanced uh, method of working um, in partnership with communities than we do in America. And um, it, I think it puts us to shame at this moment. Um, but I'm learning a lot from these conversations as to how a partnership can actually happen. Hmm. Uh, Sarah, before we go, is there a practice that you can share with our listeners to use throughout the day? You know, it's something that I thought would be nice to do together, um, or really it would be something that folks would take with them. Um, Many of us are still sheltering in place, um, and we know our homes and the crack in every wall and the ceiling all too well. And so I think that this would be appropriate for people right now because they're, they're already at home. This is, um, I invite the conductors of the human journey to um, enhance the ritual structure of the human journey with their own designs. And a design that I have found that I like a lot is one that I'd like to share um, with the listeners today. Um, I invite participants before we actually go through the human journey to prepare by choosing two objects in their home. And one object represents something that they have loved about their past, something that brings up feelings of gratitude and um, feelings of, of a loving memory. Not, I mean, not everyone had a very positive childhood, but there may be something that reminds them of something that gave them joy or a sense of beauty from their past, and for them to select that. And then for the second object, I recommend that people select an object that represents the person they feel they are becoming, that maybe they're not there yet, but the person, it represents uh, the soul that they are uh, about to live into. And to possibly share those objects with your family members could be very powerful for them and to articulate the, um, the connection between the person that was formed and the person that is in the state of becoming. Thank you for listening. That was Sarah Schneider, the founder of the Hospice Game, which is also called the Human Journey. Thank you for listening.
This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com. <laughs>